He began to explain to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled just as you heard it. Everyone was raving about Jesus. So impressed were they by the gracious words flowing from his lips. They said, This is Joseph's son, isn't it? Then Jesus said to them, Undoubtedly, you will quote this saying to me, Doctor, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we've heard you did in Capernaum. He said, I assure you that no prophet is welcome in the prophet's hometown, and I will assure you that there were many widows in Israel during Elijah's time, when it didn't rain for three and a half years, and there was a great food shortage in the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to a widow in the city of Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. There were also many persons with skin diseases in Israel during the time of the prophet Elisha, but none of them were cleansed. Instead, Naaman the Syrian was cleansed. When they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was filled with anger. They rose up and ran him out of town. They led him to the crest of the hill on which their town had been built so that they could throw him off the cliff, but he passed through the crowd and went on his way. The word of the Lord. So following last week's dramatic epiphany moment of that neighbor girl Mary's son, Jesus standing up in worship and preaching, maybe something a little similar to Layla uh, standing up and leading worship. And Jesus' message was, good news to the poor, release to the prisoners, sight to the blind, release to the oppressed, and the year of the Lord's favor, jubilee, when debts would be forgiven, a, a new start. And then he turned to these things, he turned all of these things and pointed to himself and said, this is happening in me. I am both the start and the completion of this prophecy. And so now comes the fallout. <laughs> it's, um, some of the words in this passage are wild when it's like, uh, it says something like they were excited and it's very neutral because it's, it starts out like positive excited and ends up with him almost getting thrown off a cliff excited. So uh, be careful about being excited uh, for religious things. This is, I think, um, this episode shows kind of the difference between the way a guest preacher preaches and the way an old pastor preaches. Like the guest preacher or the evangelist or the prophet or the eager seminarian like stands up there and shoots their shot, like empties the, the whole clip and says all there is to say in the most bold terms possible and then takes off down the road for, <laughs> for the, <laughs> the next speaking gig or tour date, right? And the pastor has to stick around and pick up the pieces and um, see how this transformation happens when a transformative gospel kind of wreaks havoc. Um, so Jesus stands, stands up there and in some sense casts this exciting vision that gets them excited but also calls them to turn around, to come back to God to join in with God's work rather than to resist it, to pledge allegiance to the one true God. And that often exposes 
idols as the pale imitations that they are. Needless to say, when this sort of message gets preached, the powers and principalities get upset. These reified roles and sub-supremacies don't go down without a fight. They actually might try to throw you off of a cliff. And Jesus finds this out as he re-rolls the scroll of Isaiah and descends from the pulpit. Uh, the, there's also so much in this passage about Jesus um, doing ministry in his hometown. And I often wonder about those big gaps in the Gospels. We have these birth narratives, um, this on and on of who beget who to bring about Jesus and thousands of years accounted for. And then we have Jesus's ministry as like a fully formed adult. And all this time in between without much info about what he was like as a kid, what, how he grew up and, and uh, what those days and years and seasons were like. And, and so I think there are little hints in this passage when they say, wasn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this Mary's boy? Isn't this the kid that we saw in Joseph's workshop? Isn't this like the kid who we heard when his voice changed? Like we have to remember that Jesus was a real person in a real place and had real neighbors. Um, it was really strange myself to realize a little bit of this when I, I, when our family was finally able to move into this neighborhood, and I realized like I had taken on this very noble profession and vocation as a pastor, but then I realized that if I did ministry in the same neighborhood that I lived, that my neighbors would actually hear me yell at my kids. Um, and they'd, they'd like see me get the mail, like, uh, like kind of half-dressed and in a daze, or like this morning, try to reset my water heater when it went out, and I would try to get a shower on the way here. Um, it opened my eyes to where what ministry is like and where ministry happens, and that's normally in normal places, not just in this beautiful place, but in places like the checkout line at the YMCA, or at, at the food line, or like the steam rooms at the YMCA. That's where ministry happens. My neighbor, Jim, thinks it's hilarious that I'm a pastor. We'll probably never come here. Um, but, but thinks it's hilarious that he has a friend and a neighbor that is a pastor and also thinks it's hilarious that like he can leave a beer on my doorstep for me and, and, like, and somehow like taint me as a man of the cloth or something, right? <laughs> and so, so, so I, I wonder about these things with Jesus, what it was like when Jesus was learning when Jesus was growing and, and what that looked like around Jesus. And if maybe that made Jesus standing up there and preaching this good news, this local gospel, all the more compelling, but also all the more confusing, right? Because they, they'd seen him and they knew him. I think initially in our passage, there's this kind of sheen of surprise. You say, isn't this Joseph's son? They're incredulous that this boy they'd seen a hundred times playing and working in the back of his dad's carpentry shop was now like saying these words of repair and renovation that could reconstruct their lives and reconstruct their community, reconstruct the whole of creation. But that sheen starts to wear off pretty fast. Maybe Jesus should have just ended it where he ended it, but he kept going. <laughs> I think he started to get a sense that they were, were going to capitalize on this, that Jesus was going to solve all of their problems. And he knew that this anointed vocation 
that he stepped into is really complicated and eventually they'd want more from him than he was able to give them. And I don't think that's because God is not generous. I don't think that's even because he's not able because even in a world where there's great suffering and need and expectation for God's intervention, there's always the danger of seeking the gift over the giver, the healing over the healer, the love over the lover. And Jesus realizes this, and he knew it wouldn't take long for him to start as some sort of fascination, like this anointed wonderkin from their hometown. He'd probably be on the billboard when you came into Nazareth, home of Jesus, right? Like, um, and then he turned from a, some sort of anointed wonderkin to this town cash cow, this attraction. That someone preaching this message of release to prisoners might just like, get turned into the get-out-of-jail-free card that they had all been waiting for. He, he resists this. He, he didn't want them to mistake Jubilee for a blank check in their hometown. He had just been schooled in this sort of temptation in the wilderness. He was offered sustenance, turn this rock into bread, not just for you, you're hungry, but also for the world. He was offered safety, he was offered fame, he was offered power, and he was offered all these things not by God, but by Satan. <laughs> and, and he knew, he had a sense of, he, he had such union with the Father that he, he sensed that, Satan was writing checks that were always going to bounce. And so Jesus sees the same logic in their thinking. He, he, he sees their disappointment and conflict coming from a mile away. Isn't this a little bit of the problem uh, that we often have with the gospel? That it is inherently specific and local. It's not just some broad good rule that always works and that we always have in a bind. It doesn't just involve anyone anywhere, but always someone somewhere in particular. And the good news is for all, for sure, but it's especially for each of us. It's a slower and it's a more delicate enterprise. This sort of life takes a lot of discernment and patience because there's no magic wand or bullet. So when epiphany happens, this unveiling it happens to each of us in our, in our place, with our experiences, with our hopes and our fears and our dreams. And it reveals who God is in the midst of who and where we are. For some of us, that happens so easily, and it's a light bulb that goes off. And the exact thing is evident. But for some of us, these sorts of epiphanies, especially when it comes to our life with God, epiphanies having to do with faith, it's a grind. It's like, it means that doubt is often as much part of our faith as trust. We feel guilty about that. We've, we feel torn up about that. It feels like we're working with shadows and by process of elimination. In either case, Jesus is trying to make it clear. While he came to save you, while he came to save me, while he came to save this whole world, he did not come to solve all of our problems. He came to save us, but he did not come to solve all of our problems. In some ways, our lives before encountering Jesus, before turning around to follow him, are often way simpler, 
less complicated, more lucrative, and by most metrics of the world, far more successful than they are after we start following this prophet who isn't even accepted in his hometown. You ever think about that? <laughs> that's, whew, that's, that's not a great business plan, right? And so Jesus tells them a couple of their own stories because they're thinking about this in, in nationalistic terms or at least like kind of um, uh, like jingoistic terms. They, they want their, their hometown to be great and, and to have all of their problems fixed. And so he tells them a few of Israel's stories. He's excavating their collective memory, talking about the prophets Elijah and the prophet Elisha. And I'm particularly interested in this story of Elisha and of Naaman from 2 Kings 5. If you have a chance this week, go, go back and visit. <clears throat> Just a refresher. And this is the sort of stuff you get in Godly Play. I know I don't need to, to make a plug because if you were eligible, you'd probably be there right now. But Godly Play will teach you these stories and this biblical imagination. It's just brilliant. Maybe the plug is if you want to teach and tell those stories, you can see Pastor Meg, and she will train you and equip you and get you on that schedule very fast to do that. But just a reminder, if, if you don't remember the story of Naaman. Naaman was an army commander who had won great victories for his pagan king, Aram. For all that Naaman had going for him, which was a lot, considerable, including this young Israelite wife, he also had a skin disease. And there are all these blanket diseases in the Bible that keep showing up, but from what we can gather, this skin disease is something that if he didn't get cured, it might kill him over time. We, we might speculate what that would be now, how, how, how Naaman might have gotten diagnosed by a dermatologist or something, right? So he's very motivated to get this thing fixed. Can't get it fixed where he's at, even with all the king's resources and expertise and motivation. So he mentions this to his wife, and his wife mentions, why don't you go outside of your quote-unquote network of care and <laughs> see the prophet? my people's prophet, Elisha. And, and so Naaman got permission. He heads out with more than a copay in tow. He's got a ton of cash. He's got a letter of recommendation from his king. And Naaman and his entourage pull up to Elisha's door with chariots and horses. I'm sure that was great. And, and Elisha says, okay, we'll do this why don't you go wash in the Jordan River seven times? Why don't you go wash in the Jordan River and you will be healed? And this is so frustrating to Naaman. Uh, and remember, this is a story that Jesus is using in, in, with these people. And they, they're pretty tuned in, but he might be flipping it on them a little bit. Um, so Naaman is frustrated by what Elisha is telling him. He hadn't even tried it yet. This is, my wife's a physical therapist, and she always talks about some of the people that she's with, and she's like, I will help you be healed if you do exercises, and they're like, ooh, it didn't work. Did you do exercises? No. You know, this is kind of Naaman. What Elisha is telling him is at once far too simple and far too difficult of a cure for Naaman. He thought there'd be like something really fancy, like a lot of hocus pocus, uh, a better river, Something with like 
a well-sourced spring water from Abana or Farfar, um, like, you know, so something fortified with minerals or something, not that dirty old Jordan River. He didn't want that. But it was his servant who reasoned with him. So, so listen to who's speaking truth in this story. It's his Israel, Israelite wife who doesn't have much of a say. It's his servant who is telling him what he should do, not, not, not from the top down, from the bottom up. And his servant says, if the prophet had told you to do, quote, some great thing, would you not have done it? Wash and be cleansed. And Naaman was somehow able to hear that. He finally got over himself, and he did, and he was. I love how the Jesus Storybook Bible has like a sneaky good little line around this. It says, all Naaman needed was nothing, and it was the only thing he didn't have. And so uh, I always hesitate and don't even know how to talk about these healing stories, but often, oftentimes that is our case too uh, when we seek to be healed from God. We, we want the dramatic um, in an instant that we can tell that we are healed, and oftentimes God goes about our healing in something uh, stranger but also maybe less strange than we uh, desire. Uh, I've, over the course of the last couple of years in most of y'all know me that I am like a decade into a deep like kid zone here and learning how to be a dad and learning how that is affecting my identity, uh, both as a, a person and a pastor and all the other hats that uh, we all kind of wear. And one thing that I'm learning and a, a great uh, skill that I'm trying to work on as a dad is, is normalizing how God is healing us and like re-narrating things like paper cuts. Because, uh, you know, inevitably with four kids, someone always has a Band-Aid on at any given time. And, and these are minor scrapes, paper cuts, like little things that like quote unquote heal themselves. Um, but I found myself saying that and then kind of interrogating that. Like, do I really believe that that's healing itself or do I believe that God has designed our bodies to do that? That God is somehow working in this world, and there's no cap on our world. I, I don't want there to be a cap or an eminence on our world. I want God to be able to intervene in our lives, and if God can't intervene with a paper cut, we might be doomed for the big stuff, right? And so I'm, I'm trying to be disciplined in this, um, even when I'm putting on a Band-Aid for something, for a cut I don't even see. <laughs> <laughs> parents know, amen, <laughs> to narrate that, that God actually is healing you. God will heal you. God cares about that rug burn. That's not even an open wound. <laughs> and so <laughs> that's just a little bit of a sidebar. Jesus knows that where God's epiphany would meet them, though, there would be a lot of friction. He knows that. Isn't that the place where God's epiphany meets most of us? All we need is nothing, and it's the only thing that we don't have. So we try to compensate by, by working harder, by circling the wagons tighter, by, by getting fancier technology often. We'd all do some great thing for God or for healing or for ourselves in a heartbeat, 
But would we do the needful thing? Would we do the obedient thing? Would we do the patient thing or the faithful thing? The ordinary, local, daily, neighborly thing that God calls us to do that is invisible to us or to others or insignificant, seemingly? Would we do that to create space for God to meet us? For God to manifest God's healing power in this world? For God to continue to move in mysterious ways even to us because we can't commoditize this. Like I, I think that's what Jesus was thinking that they were going to do next. We can't force it. We can't control it. But we can make space for God to show up to us. Jesus knew for them and for us that if you do what you always do, you'll get what you always get. And so I think he was just trying to kind of let some air into the room in this whole arrangement so that they wouldn't be so disappointed with him, that they wouldn't be disappointed with God. Because when it comes down to it, epiphany, the unveiling of who God is and, and how God is, the shape of the divine life, really wasn't going to blow their hair back the way they thought it should, right? <laughs> and I got news for you, it probably won't for us either often. Sometimes we will be on that mountaintop and it will be great and we should tell about it. But oftentimes God is just knocking all throughout the day, every day, and we've learned how to screen that out or not, not think that that was important. Um, I've been reading these books by a pastoral theologian named Andy Root. I think he imagined something similar with how Epiphany happened for St. Paul. He, he talks about Paul's big dramatic, we often make it a big dramatic um, uh, transformation call, conversion narrative. And when it comes down to it, like, Paul, you know, fell off a horse, like, People fall off horses every day, and it doesn't, like, create a whole movement and a whole religion and a whole, like, apostolic uh, church-planning moment in history. But, but Paul's event was narrated as something really substantial because Jesus met him. He, he narrates this that, that Paul was lying blind in Ananias' house, and he, he was still breathing, like, murderous threats against those silly and dangerous Jesus heretics. At least that's how Saul saw them. He, he thought they were heterodox, like not, not right about the things of God. And so he was zealous, and he was going to take them out. But this zealot Saul gets knocked off of his high horse by an epiphany, the risen Jesus. Saul, why are you killing my people? Why are you hurting them? And, and he gets knocked over, and now all he can do, he's, he's maimed, he, he fell off a horse, he's blind, all he can do is sit and trust that these people that he was trying to kill would take care of him. All he can do is, um, and th this is where Andy Root imagines, he's just sitting there blind, um, kind of convalescing, being taken care of by who he was trying to kill, and he's just soaking in as they're singing and worshiping. And the song that they're singing, maybe it was that song that Paul would later write in the letter to the Philippians, the church in Philippi. 
that, that says something like, because Jesus was in the very form of God, he did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself and became a servant, a slave, a minister, the shape of a human being. He was obedient to death, shockingly, even death on a cross. Maybe this was the song that got into Paul's mind. And it's, it, it's an epiphany because the very thing that Paul despised, that taboo, ordinary instrument of torture that could have nothing to do with God in Paul's mind, now became the whole shape of his life, the cross, the core of Paul's message, to, be, to die with Christ and to be raised to new life, crucified with Christ, no longer living, but Christ living in him. By his stripes, we've all been healed, becomes his message. This is what an epiphany was like for Paul. And it happened on a road that he'd traveled before and in exactly the place that he didn't think he would learn something new about God. He didn't even think he could know something new about God. And he had his life turned upside down. So friends, today I hope that we can have a fresh encounter with this timeless and also kind of extremely timely good news that we have our own personal but by no means private epiphanies about God, where God's Spirit shows you who God is and what that means for your life. There's one God, but there are so many of us in this room, and so God is going to speak to you. That might be a big change, like a radical overturning of the way you thought things were supposed to be, but it also might be a release a letting go, a repentance. It could also be an assurance or an encouragement that God is still there and that faithfulness just means keeping going, like a long obedience in the same direction. Just keep moving. Or it could just be a reminder that God is still in the healing business. Maybe that's the big epiphany. And that scar tissue sometimes takes a really long time to form and even after it's there is really tender. That doesn't mean healing hasn't happened. It actually means that healing is happening. And just as the gospel is always, before, it's always for someone before it's for everyone, God's good news burst onto the scene in familiar places, not any old day, but today. Jesus stood before them and said, friends, today this is happening in your midst, and points to himself, today. This is happening, not under ideal circumstances in a laboratory to some hypothetical person who is better equipped to receive this or super ready for God to change their life, but today, now, it could be right now that God is, that God is speaking to you. This gospel is, is also, it's for us, it's for each of us, it's also for everyone, it's beyond our community, it's beyond our comfort and our self-interest, it's for them and for those, it's, it's from the bottom up. The common denominator is that we must organize our lives and our reflexes and our habits in order to be open to discovery, open to God encountering us. And we have to be ready for God to feed and to heal and to transform and to fill and to reconcile, not through extraordinary means, but through like extraordinary things in our lives. Today, 
today is a good day for those of us who are seeking healing in some way, shape, or form. In a moment, we're going to have some silence. Maybe that is what you bring to God. Today is a good day for someone who is, like, pissed off or disappointed with God. It's okay to say that. Read the Psalms. There is a lot of that sort of language, and that is okay. Maybe today is a day when you can start to hash that out and stop tamping it down. Maybe today is a good day for recalibrating your expectations and starting to rebuild your faith. Uh, that's, that's a lot of what Jesus is doing when he's preaching to these crowds, is having them recalibrate and reconfigure what they think they know. Or maybe today is a day where you are realizing, your epiphany is realizing the healing you've experienced and like configuring your testimony, your way of sharing that and telling others about it, telling others about how good God is and how you've been met. Because the spirit of the Lord is still on Jesus and it's the same spirit that, that blows through the trees from where and to where we don't know but is among us. And it is that spirit who has anointed him to preach good news to the poor, freedom to the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim jubilee. This has been fulfilled in our hearing. Will you all pray with me? Lord Jesus, we give you thanks. We give you thanks that you, you make good promises and you make good on your promises. But you often surprise us in how you do it. Thanks for uh, continuing to open eyes and hearts and change lives to heal our mortal bodies and to heal our souls. Uh, thanks for this community and all that you're doing in our midst. Give us an awareness of it and a gratefulness for it. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.